you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. So imagine this short work. A man who seems rather familiar with you walks up to you, knows your name, knows your father's name, and he says, follow me. You got some initial questions, right? Like, where are we going? Do I know you? How do you know my name? Are you a friend of my dad? Is this dude crazy? The man will be asking you to leave all that you are familiar with, a job that you might love. It might mean that you won't have a 401k, no investment portfolio. You will be living a nomadic lifestyle, moving from place to place, always sleeping on someone's floor or couch. You will be learning from the best teacher in the world. Would you go? Jesus is calling you today. And you don't have to quit your job to follow Jesus. In fact, that job is exactly where Jesus would want you to be. But not just working, but striving to have a healthy work-life balance. Your school is exactly where Jesus would want you to be. And not just getting by, but being the best student you can your neighborhood, your local park, your home is exactly where Jesus wants you to be. It is exactly where you have followed him to. And if you're not following Jesus, this is a time to think about what it means to follow Jesus. The passage that we're looking at today shows us what it really means to follow Jesus. It's not about being perfect It's not about acting like you got it together. Every Christian in this room, I assure you, does not have it together. If they say they do, then that's pride and further proves my point. If I had to put our sermon text into one sentence, the sentence would be, when you follow Jesus, you get to participate in kingdom work. You are forgiven and you are blessed with a spiritual family. When you follow Jesus, you get to participate in kingdom work. You are forgiven, and you are blessed with a spiritual family. We pick up this week in verses 13 through 19 with a great crowd following Jesus. Jesus then goes up to a mountain and calls the 12 disciples. Mountains are important. Jesus was tempted on the mountain by Satan after fasting 40 days and nights. Jesus preached his great sermon on the mount. Part of the sermon says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The great commission also given on a mountain. Part of it says, go and make disciples. The 12 are called by Jesus. 12 unlikely men do just that. They go and make disciples. They follow Jesus to advance his kingdom. These 12 men representing the 12 tribes of Israel are doing something significant. Israel hasn't always been significant. Israel being a nomadic people following an invisible God whose blessings could take generations to be seen. Insignificant Israel was chosen by God and God blessed them. Just like Israel was chosen by God, so are the 12. And Jesus is establishing a new kingdom, a new Israel. Jesus is establishing an invisible kingdom, one that can't be seen by human eyes, a kingdom who has a king that didn't come to be served. Get this, Jesus being an outcast, coming to serve the outcast, the sick, the needy, the sinner. 
Jesus calls the disciples to himself. These men will be tasked with leading the early church and, and proclaiming the gospel to all nations and building his kingdom. Jesus, in Luke 6, 12 through 13, prayed all night before choosing the twelve. Jesus saw this as an important decision in his ministry. He chose 12 men who would follow him, and what did they do? They followed him. They would follow him, be with him, learn from him. They were like his apprentices, and as his apostles. To be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness to Jesus. These apostles, chosen on a mountain, are appointed to carry out his mission. They would have authority to preach and cast out demons. In word and action, they are to carry out the work of building the kingdom of God. The work is so serious, Jesus wants them to spend three years with him, watching and learning from the master himself. When he chooses the twelve, he shows that he is establishing a new holy nation, a new community called the church. The Bible in Revelation depicts a church comprised of every tribe, nation, and tongue, These 12 men are the start of this new family. This group of men had a variety of backgrounds, interests, passions. So let me try to paint the picture of what these 12 men coming together looked like without it imploding on itself. Simon the Zealot. These zealots advocated revolutionary tactics to overthrow the power of Rome. Simon would have hated Rome and anything to do with Rome bringing him and Matthew, the tax collector, Matthew who worked for Rome, the tax collector was hated by Rome and the Israelites together. Everybody hated Matthew. This dude was never invited to any barbecue, any event. He was bleeding his own people out of their hard-earned money. Bringing these two together is something only the gospel can do. The gospel unites people who would otherwise hate one another, brings them together, commands them to love one another, and then commands them to pray for their enemy. That's the power of Jesus. These 12 were different in a lot of ways, but they had one thing in common. Jesus called them out, committed himself to invest in them, and use them to change the world. Likewise, we must call out those we wish to invest in as we continue to make disciples of Jesus today. Some of the people you will eventually lead will fail you. One example is the ugliest in human history. The Bible is honest in its reporting. In every list, it lists Judas. In every list, notes his betrayal. Judas was chosen by our Lord. Judas would serve for a while, he was even noted to be a treasurer, though he was dishonest in his assignment. All of this reminds us that if you live long enough and serve long enough, you will be disappointed by people you love and who you thought loved you. You will let your guard down, believing that they will take a bullet for you, only to realize that the knife in their back has their prints on it. Jesus relates to this very well as he was betrayed by someone who he served for three years. And it's one thing to be misunderstood, let down, betrayed by a friend, but it's hard to put in words when it's your own family. Look at verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. 
In this text, Jesus has returned home, probably to Capernaum, to the home of Peter and Andrew. The crowds surge to Jesus with a vengeance. It appears to never end. The house is so full of people, Jesus can't find time or space to eat. We see this in verse 20. The crowd doesn't want to spend time with Jesus to hear his teachings. They want what Jesus can do for them. But Jesus is about his father's business. They forget that Jesus has a mission, an agenda to get to the cross, to die for their sins, this being their and our biggest need. And crowds following teachers for the wrong reasons persist today. People are socially unaware and lack a kingdom mindset. People flocking to big-name preachers to cling to them only because they are popular. However, they completely miss the message that that pastor is preaching. They will smother the preacher if they get a chance. Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God, and everyone has an opinion on him. From our text, the opinion of his family is that he is out of his mind. His family thought he was out of his mind. And this is the first time his family is mentioned. They hear that Jesus is swamped, so much so that he doesn't have time or space to eat. So his family's like, we got to do something. Let's seize him. His family could have been doing this. Scholars believe so Jesus doesn't dishonor his family name. They also could have been genuinely concerned for him. From his family's perspective, Jesus is a religious fanatic who is hurting his family name, is a danger to himself, and doesn't have time or space to eat. They are thinking he has to be stopped. So far, Jesus has called the twelve on the mountain, putting together dudes in the same space, who we think is a very bad idea, and his family thinks that he is out of his mind. Now to fast forward a little bit, Jesus then addresses an eternal sin that we should pay attention to. Look at verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And this is why. Because some are so hardened in their rejection of Jesus as God's true Messiah that they attribute to Satan the works of the Holy Spirit done through Jesus, and they will never be forgiven. I understand when any sensitive believer hears an eternal sin, it strikes fear and terror in some of our hearts. Eternal sin is a scary word, maybe akin to words like antichrist, false prophet, or lake of fire. When we hear eternal sin, it should cause us to pay close attention. They all serve as stark reminders that sin is real and judgment is sure. Hear this, you should be afraid of your sin. You should be afraid of your propensity to sin, but not in a way that diminishes the power of Jesus. Sin is scary. It will always cost us more than we're willing to pay and take us further than we're willing to go. I speak from personal experience. Make our heart believe that Jesus is better than any lie the enemy has ever told us about our sin. Jesus is better. When we read about the eternal sin, it denotes that when a person commits this sin, it will never be forgiven and will condemn us eternally to hell, the lake of fire. So is that really 
an unforgivable, unpardonable sin, eternal sin. If God says never, I believe God means never. God is not neutral to sin. A billion years from now, his verdict will stand like stone. This is true of God's wrath and his forgiveness. This sin is talked about right after Jesus is accused by his family being out of his mind. So this is what happens. A religious delegation arrives to investigate Jesus. They come down from Jerusalem. Their findings are somewhat different than what his family says about him. They say he is possessed by Beelzebub, which is saying Jesus is possessed by Satan. They are saying his power is from Satan to cast out demons. In the midst of their harsh harsh judgment and criticism, we see general characteristics of sin that can never be forgiven. It is a warning for us to run from our sin with fear and trembling and flee to Jesus in faith and repentance. So what do we learn from the eternal sin? The verb in verses 22 and 30 are the same. We see the words worth saying in birth verses. The words worth saying is in the imperfect tense means that they were continually saying this about Jesus. They consistently hurled the slur at Jesus as a way to ruin his reputation. They called the supremely good one the evil one. It was their persistent rejection and declaration against what the Holy Spirit of God was doing through Jesus. Such actions revealed that they had hardened hearts that called evil good that would not celebrate the works of God in Christ. Anyone who continues down this road would never be forgiven by God. If you're in the room and you're thinking, have I committed this sin? If you are worried that you have committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, hear this. You being worried and you practicing repentance is a sign that you are not guilty of this. Verse 28 is where you land. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. This is not giving us a license to sin, but hear this. Your debt has been paid. When Jesus looks at you, believer, he says, mine, I paid the price for their sin, even the sin of his accusers. And Jesus shares a parable with them, a parable being a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Jesus does this in the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're looking at verses 20 through 27 here. So he asked them, why would Satan act against himself? This is a parable about the kingdom of Satan. Satan is attempting to build a kingdom. Satan's kingdom is unified. Satan is attempting to enslave humanity, not by setting them free. Satan won't tear down his own kingdom. We just need to look around at all the misery that we see to see that this is true. It is ridiculous of them to think that he will be working for Satan by setting Satan's captives free. This shows their spiritual blinding as if they are saying, my mind is made up, don't show me the facts. Jesus then shifts gears and talks about a house divided. Pick your context, marriage, sports, business, family. The truth remains. Division in the ranks will cause the institution to fail, destroying itself. Jesus says it plainly in verse 26, is Satan has risen up against himself and is divided. 
he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus then continues this parable, and I love this part. Satan is the strong man, and Jesus is the one breaking into his house, his ram, to bind and plunder. Satan is indeed a strong man in this world. His house is full of sin, disease, sickness, all things evil and wicked. His possessions are human beings enslaved by all of these things. No one but Jesus is more powerful than the strong man. And Jesus' point is this. He has come, and he can and will bind Satan. This is what Jesus is doing right now and what he came to climatically do at the cross. It is self-evident and indisputable that the Son of God has come to destroy the works of the devil. In denying this truth, the scribes revealed their spiritual blindness. They are blind to see that the one who the Scriptures say will come was present with them, doing exactly what the Scriptures say that he would do, saying, my mind is made up. Don't show me the facts. We finish our time with the final portion of Scriptures, verses 31 through 35. Jesus talks about who his family is, who his people are. After his family thought Jesus was out of his mind, they sent to him and called him. The crowd was like, your mother and brothers and sisters are looking for you. He asked, who are my mother and brother? Jesus then says, this is my family. Jesus says, we're not brought into the family of God by physical relationships, but by faith in Jesus Christ, leading to humble obedience. In this context, Jesus makes clear who his family is and who is not, who's in and who is not. His words cannot be more striking and clear. We don't pick our family. Jesus did. So love your brother and sister in Christ as best as you can. Pray for them when they're acting crazy. Correct them from Scripture if they are wrong. That is what family is for. Lean into the family you have as soldier mantras. Lean into the best brother you have, Jesus. In the family of God, we are a people of many tribes, nations, and tongues. This is important to God. If he didn't care about people, he wouldn't have made billions of us. In the family of God, it's not our beauty or our appearance that we look to. We look to God. I leave you with these words from Psalms 34, verse 5. It says, those who look to him are radiant, and they will never be ashamed. If you walked in here ashamed of what you did, lift your head and look to the one who says that you are radiant. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He looks at you and says, mine. Let's pray. Lord, those who look to you are radiant. You allow us to co-labor with you. Help us to labor well to advance your kingdom. We are forgiven of current sin, past sin, and future sin. We are yours. Jesus, the friend of sinners, has welcomed us. And because of Jesus, we who were dead in our sins and trespasses are made alive together with Christ. 
as we pray right now, compel us to believe that you are better. Give us the strength to go throughout the rest of our day. Give us the strength that we need to go out the rest of this week knowing that you are with us, Jesus. You love us in spite of ourselves. And when we are looked at, we are looked at as but love because we are in Christ. Father, help our hearts believe that you are better. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.